How does one go from rubbing elbows with the likes of Betty Davis and Elizabeth Taylor to finding themselves in the midst of the Attica prison riot in 1971? Good morning. I'm George Borarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. My guest this morning is David Rothenberg. David's the founder of the Fortune Society, an organization that helps ex-convicts get their lives back on track. He launched the Fortune Society in 1967, but before that, he was a press agent for some of the most successful Broadway productions of the 20th century, including Richard Burton's Hamlet and Hare. So what lured him away from the bright lights of Broadway to a life of helping people leaving the dark world of prison? David joins us this morning to talk about his new book, Fortune in My Eyes, a memoir of Broadway glamour, social justice, and political passion. David, welcome to Cityscape. Thank you. It's a pleasure. The photo on the cover of this book features a much younger David Rothenberg. A century ago. A century ago. I'm 40 in that picture. I'm 80 now. Wow. How would you describe yourself at that point in your life? When you look at this picture, what comes to mind? Besides that, though, you're pretty serious in this photo. Um, Well, that was taken at the Fortune Society, and the pictures behind me, there are people who had come through Fortune and had... um, reclaim their lives and so with their photographs were up there it's interesting that it looks serious because there's so much laughs at the fortune society that people are very shocked when they come to a place that's um, for re-entry for people who have been incarcerated they think it's going to be tense and and dramatic and uh, the halls are filled with laughter it's strange where does that laughter come from i don't know but i you know i worked in the theater for many years they should borrow from fortune society because the intensity and the lack of um frivolity that doesn't exist in theater offices, the comparison is very interesting to me. Now, you were a press agent. You were a producer for Broadway for a number of years. Yeah, well, the the producing of the play Fortune in Men's Eyes is how the Fortune Society began. I knew nothing about jail, prison. What I knew was old Cagney movies. You know, they were either escaping or rioting. And I read this play that was sent to me by a Canadian drama critic about a kid who goes, the play Fortune in Men's Eyes is about a young man who goes into jail and has raped his first night there. And that was an eye-opener and shocking to me. And I thought, I considered myself politically sophisticated and involved and said, this is something I know nothing about. So you brought that to but, Off-Broadway? Yeah. First, I met the playwright because I realized it's, it, it rang with truth. And I knew it had to, he had to have been in prison. And when I met John Herbert, I realized, well, he told me he was the kid that was gang raped mm. in his first night in prison. And it was 20 years later. And it was, um, he's, he was on the edge of respectability. He never did time again, but he never, he was never. What did he do time for? Um, he was six months as a kid, uh, some altercation with other kids. And, they, and the cops just threw him in and uh, they thought it would be a good lesson for him. And the lesson was that he became so angry. And he said he he traveled around Canada and the States on the outside of respectability. And when he went to visit his sister in Toronto, where he grew up, she was involved with a community theater group. And he found the theater people very nonjudgmental and very different. And he loved hanging out with them. And he helped painting sets and sewing costumes and all those things. And he realized that he had a play in him. And in in two weeks of passion and ferocity. He wrote Fortune in Men's Eyes. And I started asking him a lot of questions about jail and prisons and realized how little I knew. But my goal was as a theater person to get the play produced. 
Was it a challenge to do that, considering the oh, topic? No. Oh, yeah. People, uh, my friends in the theater read the, read the script and said, oh, what a wonderful play. You were out of your mind. Hmm. What year was this? 67. Why did they say you were out of your mind at that because time? Because they said, no, people aren't going to sit in a, a theater and watch a kid get gang raped. And, uh, and there were a lot of people who had a tough time seeing it. But it was the 60s. You've heard of that era when, thing, when people mm-hmm. were challenging and questioning. And I had been in the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement, but didn't know anything about prisons. And when the play started running, uh, we started forums after the performance. And uh, guys in the audience started introducing themselves as having done time. And one of the things I learned very quickly is that most of the guys who I met were starting to meet, who were hanging out at the theater and had changed their lives. Almost every one of them was in AA and that they had dealt with things that got them into trouble, but they had, you know, usually they got into trouble when they were drunk, when they were drinking. and But, but through sobriety and through a, the comradeship of AA, they were able to uh, solidify their lives. But the one thing that I was aware of is that they hadn't dealt with their rage about their prison experience. And it was the 60s, and, and these guys started joining me on the on the stage after with the actors uh, in the forums. And I started getting calls from audience members inviting us to come to the St. John's College. We didn't get to Fordham, but we did get to St. John's and City College and and churches and synagogues and community groups. And as we were doing this, I said, we have the nucleus of an organization. Uh, We could educate the public and change the prison system. And so my initial notion was for it to be advocates for a group of people who had no who had no constituency. What were the main issues that you were trying to educate people about at that time? The, the issues then are exactly the same now as they are today. Uh, people come out of prison uh, with the prison face and the prison attitude and society's not ready to bring them back in. Housing is pro- a pro- was a problem then. Jobs was a problem then. St- same thing. Same issues now. How does that make you feel that the same issues exist all of these years so, later since founding the Fortune well, Society? Well, systemically they exist, but I, but you deal with each individual as they come. And, and we have a roster of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who we were able to help. But, but the system is, for example, I just read in the, in the Times a couple of weeks ago that they, and housing is still a very big issue. When we opened the castle, the Fortune Academy, which has 62 people. This is on Manhattan's west side? Yeah, on 140th and Riverside Drive for people who are homeless and out of prison. It needs, we need 10 of those, 20 of those, because the need is so, the waiting list to get into the castle is enormous. And it's it, it, come visit. It's I mean, you walk in and you feel like you're in a college dorm. Mm, it's a but, beautiful building yeah, from the outside. It's a great building, and and what happens inside is even more important. And people do reclaim their lives. But I read in the Times a couple of weeks ago that some landlord was paying twenty five thousand to a guy to get his get him out of the building because his building is being turned into uh, single rooms, and the city. The Department of the Division of Homeless Services will pay him three thousand dollars a month for each tenant in each room. Now these are single rooms with no kitchen facilities and no baths. Now this existed twenty five years ago. I was aware of it with the Martinique Hotel on Thirty Second Street, where and then they were paying a thousand dollars. Inflation now the landlords get more, but they're paying three thousand a month for a guy to live in a room with no support services. No counseling, no job, uh, no no program to get them out of that. One of the important things at the castle is, and I tonight I'll be going to the community meeting. Every week we talk about 
we are preparing you for the real world. We have finance classes, how to deal with, how to open a bank account, how to deal with your, how much are you spending, how much, how much you have coming in. Are you going to be able to pay rent and and cable bills and electric bills and your food? We have classes so that they they've never had finance classes. Why isn't that being done in the system? How long do people generally stay at the castle before becoming self-sufficient? Well, we have we have two phases. They come into the castle and there's emergency. Uh, about 12 people are in that at a <clears throat> given time. And that's to determine by us and by them if this is the right place for them. Do they want to change their lives? Do they want to stop smoking weed? Do they want to stop drinking? Do they want to uh, look for jobs? Do they want to uh, further their education? If they, if they don't, uh, you can have your misery back. You and know? you have people say no and walk away? Occasionally. Occasionally. They usually arrive at, from shelters or prisons, and they're so dazzled by a clean place with a nice atmosphere that they're... Um, and and the, a lot of the guys and women that I've talked to who have been there a long time said that they usually did what they did in, when they went to a new prison. They'd sort of watch quietly to see what the culture of the place was. And when they realized that something different was happening, they'd slowly open up. The community meetings are fascinating to me, It's which is how the play The Castle. Be, you know, we do a play called The Castle, which was four residents and myself got together and said, Let's tell this in dramatic shape. And we did it as a fundraiser up at the castle. A producer saw it, moved it off Broadway. It, we now have two companies, and we still play at colleges. And we haven't played Fordham now. You have to come to Fordham, been, I guess. We're huh? going to be at Rutgers next month, and we're going to be at Baruch. But a film has been made of it, and that's going to open in April at the Quads on 13th Street. Uh, what stories are told in that play? Uh, four people, um, Casimira Torres, Vilma Ortiz Donovan, Kenny Harrigan, and Angel Ramos, who between the four of them have done 60 years in prison. Mm. And uh, it, the play begins, Kaz, Kaz Torres comes out and first says, I was homeless when I arrived at the castle with 67 arrests and 16 years in prison. And his story, which is not untypical, sadly, was that uh, he never knew his father, uh, his mother was an alcoholic, loving but incapable of handling her nine children from three different men. The authorities took him away. He was put into a state home at the age of five, separated from his siblings except with one brother, his brother Nino, and uh, was brutalized by the state in the state homes. And the, one of the most important things he says in the play is, at the age of 10, I was introduced to weed and wine, and from then on, that's how I managed my pain. And when he tells that story, you and and you, if we do it in a prison, and we've done it in the prisons, you see the guys nodding in agreement because they identify with it. That's their story. They've never they've never seen their own lives validated on in a play or in a movie. And then the Q and A, they they say that's what they say in the movie. In the movie that's been made, the documentary that's been made, one of the the play was photographed twice, once in a prison. And you hear the comments from the guys in the audience. What do you want the takeaway to be when you bring that play to a college campus? The same thing I got when I first saw the play, Fortune, read the play Fortune in Men's Eyes, to be aware that there are other human beings other than the world that you're living in who have dreams and hopes that have been, and their dreams have been massacred pretty much. And how do you restore hope? How sympathetic do you find most people to be to prisoners? Well, it depends on how you present yourself. My friend Sam Rivera, he says, the crime is what I did. It's not who I am. And with his charm and his personality, when he goes and speaks, people are saying, I'll, you know, 
I'll give you a, I'll give you some consideration. That's very different than what if you put on television tonight. Across the board, you'll see nothing but crime, 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 crime. Uh, hope is not is not cannot get sponsors, <laughs> but uh, the guns and the shooting and the violence. There's probably more crimes committed tonight on television than there is in the city of New York. Uh, from the cable, sh- I mean, the sun never sets on Law and Order and CSI, and those are the best of the group. But from the uh, lockdown and jail, these terrible documentaries, Oz, which used to be on, uh, I guess HBO, mm-hmm. but the cable shows, it's there's a, it's the gun never stops. So what do you say to people who say, you know what, you did the crime, you do the time, you lose your rights, I don't want to hear about it. Um, well, the fact is, you may not want to hear about it, but they're coming back, and they're going to come. And how are they coming back? And are they going to be a continuing threat to you, or are they going to be part of the solution? It's not. It's not that complicated to explain to someone. But the people who have been victimized are angry, understandably. But the reality is, the many of the most of the people that I've met that have gone to prison were victimized as children. What do you want people to know about life behind? bars to help shed light on the system? Well, the most significant thing is that that in almost every institution in the United States, and I've been in prisons all over the country, very rarely are people confronted with the very reasons why they are there. Mostly, they have to learn how to survive in the subculture, which is usually the kind of, and emulating the kind of behavior that got them there in the first place. So not only do you, when people come out, are you faced with the M.O. that got them in there. You have to undo the damage of prison. I always remember an old-timer, Larry White, said to me, he did a lot of time, and he said, you know, to survive in prison, you have to put on coats of armor, and not just one, several. And then the doors are open, and you come out, and nobody tells you how to turn, take off the coats. And he said that's what the castle allowed him to do. He came out angry at the society that allowed that to happen to him, and he said he had to learn how to take the coats off slowly so he could be a citizen again. And when he finished parole and he finally he voted in the last election, he was so excited. He said, I'm a citizen and a taxpayer. I know there is a lot of controversy about the use of solitary confinement in prisons. What are your thoughts there? It's an insane concept. It's absolutely, I've been to, I've been to um, many uh, solitary confinements. And all I say is to folks who, who think, well, you, you know, if you have to be punished, when I've had the, a cold and I'm in my apartment with the television set and the telephone and the radio and the books and the kitchen, after a couple of days, I go bananas. I want out. You know, it's like to just lock yourself in your bathroom and stay there for four days and have somebody put food under, a, open the door and slip the food in. You have the toilet, which will start smelling after a while. Uh, they don't. They have the showers every other day. What? You know what is, what is somebody treated like that over a period of six months or a year? What are they going to be like when they come out? Well, you see the results of that. What are they like when rage, they come out? Rage, anger. Um, the, the people in the in the play, the castle have all been in solitary confinement. 
You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm George Bodarki. My guest this morning is David Rothenberg. He's the author of Fortune in My Eyes, a memoir of Broadway glamour, social justice, and political passion. So, David, we never you, got the Broadway glamour. I know. We're going to talk about Broadway <laughs> glamour. That's exactly where I was going. Now, again, you spent many years as a press agent and producer on Broadway. You worked with the likes of Betty Davis and Elizabeth Taylor. That was quite the life you were leading for a while before you got into well, activism. My big story is I dated Elizabeth. You dated Elizabeth. I always like to say I'm one of the few men that dated Elizabeth Taylor that didn't marry her. <laughs> I loved her. She was wonderful to me. You were her date for the a op- show, right? I was her date at the opening of Richard's, Richard Burton's Hamlet, which she had married him at the time. So he was on stage and she said, would you be, would you join me at the opening? I said, oh, all right. Somebody has to. So it may be a rotten job, but somebody has to do it. Life for you on Broadway, clearly much, much different than life as an advocate for prisoners, huh? Actually, it was the experience working with Richard and Elizabeth that that made me look for something else in the theater. How so? And it wasn't their fault. Well, because of the, the craziness. I mean, if if you watch the red carpet stuff now, Richard and Elizabeth, it was wild. When they made Cleopatra in Rome, they were both married to someone else. There was no cable television or e-channel in those days, but the tabloids went crazy because they both left their mates for... uh, And and in 64, 63, when this was happening, they were living together outside of marriage, and that was sinful. So when when Richard... That's when I was told I was going to be doing the publicity for the Burton Hamlet... And it was decided that rehearsals would be in Toronto to avoid the craziness that was seen in Rome and in Puerto Vallada, where Richard, after uh, Cleopatra was filming Night of the Iguana, uh, and Elizabeth was with him, but not in the movie. And the press found their way to this remote Mexican community. And Alex Cohn, the producer, said, we're going to rehearse in Toronto to avoid the craziness. Well, when I arrived at in Toronto at the King Edward Hotel, it was being picketed by 200 people who, because the Legion of Decency decided that it was immoral for a man and woman to be living together outside of marriage. Hmm. And they did get married during the rehearsal period. And it was at that time, you know, from at the very beginning, dealing with the press and the craziness that I got to know Elizabeth and uh, wanted to protect her. But she was, uh, she had said to me at one point, you know, this is all new for Richard. I grew up with this and I lived with this since childhood. Richard doesn't know that he can't go bar hopping after a show. He can't anymore. She said, I never could. My friends are the people I work with, thus me. And uh, we were, you know, Richard was busy and I was in Toronto a lot, so we'd lunch and sup and. so how did that instigate you leaving Broadway well, for a life well, beca- of political activism well, working with prisoners? Well, because uh, when the show when the when the chartered plane came to Boston with the cast and I was the advance man, I was knocked out by the cops because there were 10,000 people there and I was trying to get through because I had all the information for the people on the chartered plane and the cops. I was 28 at the time and I looked 12 and the cops said, you, kid, you got to get back. And I told, and I was rabbit punched and ended up in the first aid place at Logan Airport. And then when the show opened in New York, uh, every night the crowds at the uh, at the Lanfontaine Theater on 47th Street, the cops were on horseback. And every other show, the people would come and stand there to get a glimpse of hoping that Elizabeth was backstage, which she usually was. And so that my job was about 
craziness and crowd control and people wanting to touch the hem of Richard and Elizabeth. So you got tired of that lifestyle? I was. It was. No, I loved the theater. I didn't. I wasn't interested in all of that, and it certainly wasn't their fault. They couldn't have been nicer. Uh, and particularly uh, Elizabeth, I spent much more time with her than than with Richard because he was always on stage. But I thought, no, I want to work on theater that makes a difference. And I, uh, I let I left the country after Hamlet closed and went to live in Italy for six months and came back and um, decided I wanted to do theater that made a difference. So and, that's when Fortune and well, Men's no, Eyes... First, first I did an anti-Vietnam war play called Viet Rock. You mentioned how crazy things got with Elizabeth Taylor, the media, the police, all of that hoopla. But things got even crazier for you when you entered a life of activism advocating for prisoners because you found yourself in some pretty tense situations. You write about how you were at Attica during the riots in the early 1970s. Yeah, when when Attica jumped off in 71, Fortune Society was four years old, and I had been in correspondence with several inmates, um, and we had started mimeographing a newsletter for younger people. Mimeograph is a machine. that It was like Xeroxing before it was... (laughs) And uh, the Department of Corre- – it was just a simple little news bulletin about what Fortune Society was. And the Department of Correction and their infinite idiocy banned it. <laughs> As a result, the inmates wanted it – must thought that we were doing something very important. And I got lots of letters from inmates and be- began a correspondence with several in Attica. So when the riot happened in Attica, when the inmates took over the institution in September of 71, uh, and they – the state wanted to negotiate with them to get the hostages. The inmates said, we don't trust you. We want outsiders to come in. And they gave a list of people. And on my name was on the list. What a shock to get a phone call from a, Arthur Eve, an assemblyman in Buffalo, said, we want to fly you to Attica, will you, to Buffalo, and bring you to Attica. Will you come in? And I, okay, yes. It was, And you walk into a yard where the inmates have taken over and the guards, hostages are being held there and the guards with the rifles are on the walk and you're suddenly there with Kunstler and Tom Wicker of the Times and Herman Badillo and uh, State Senator Baba Garcia and and you realize that this is no longer social activism. This is life and death. These are men that, whose lives are on the line, that, that this is it. And indeed it was it. And many of the men we met with died because Nelson Rockefeller made a choice to send in uh, the governor at the time, Nelson Rockefeller. Sent in rifles to take over when he could have maced the institution and taken it uh, without death. But uh, it's always been my contention that uh, it was a political decision because he wanted to be governor and he wanted to be president. He was perceived as a liberal Easterner, and he was trying to placate the right wing of the Republican Party, and he made it tough. You are now an openly gay man, right? Yeah. Now, it That's took... That, that took that took guts. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, for you, it was challenging to come out, in part because you were afraid what that would do to the Fortune Society, yeah, correct? Well, yes. In 1973, I was approached about being on the board of the National Gay Task Force, cause, which was just starting, and a couple of people who were aware of, that I was gay approached me, and I said, well, I'm you know, I'm the director of the Fortune Society, and blah, blah, blah. What would that do? And because homophobia was... There was no, there were no issues like gay marriage. There were issues like, are you just going to even announce that you're gay? 
And so I pulled all the guys and women together, the cadre from Fortune, all who had been incarcerated, and told them three things. I said, I have three things to tell you. I'm, one is that I'm gay, which they didn't know. Two is I've been asked to go on a national television show, the David Susskind Show. And three, I'm prepared to submit my resignation to Fortune. Long pause, and Kenny Jackson, formerly incarcerated, recovering alcoholic, recovering addict, said, what are you going to wear on television? And I, that was not the question. I was anticipating, and I said, I don't, know your, I don't know what your question's about. And he said, well, you dress like a slob. Will you get something nice to wear so we can be proud of you? And then Melvin Rivers, who was a former street gang kid from Bed-Stuy, made what I, t- I told him years later, probably the most sophisticated political statement I ever heard. He said, you've been standing beside us for seven years, six, seven years, telling us to be honest about our lives. Give us the same chance to stand by you. He wasn't saying, he, you know, he didn't say you should do what, what for yourself. He said, give us the opportunity. He was asking permission to support me. What did that mean to you at well, the time? Well, you know, like, I still get, I get misty. I think about because that was unacceptable love and acceptance that I never anticipated. And uh, when I went on the Susskind program the next day, the phone calls, you know, the New York Times had, used to have a people column. My coming out was between Hubert Humphrey's gall- gallbladder operation and Marshall Tito's 80th birthday. I mean, <laughs> it was news in those days that somebody announced that they were gay. Mm-hmm. That wasn't a movie star, wasn't a uh, CNN anchor. And the next day after the television show played, the phone calls one after the other, and it was draining. And Jeanette Spencer is an old-timer. She'd done a lot of time. She came and said, what's the matter, baby? And I I had all these calls, and she said, you know, when you spend so much of your life waiting, expecting rejection, it's tough to accept a lot of love. Why don't you just go home, leave here today, and enjoy it? And that's what I did. And then my life went on, and nobody cared. And you remained as the head of the Fortune Society. I stayed at Fortune for 18 years until I ran for city government, and then went back into the theater, and now I'm retired, and I spend a lot of my time at Fortune. You ran for city government, New York City Council, in 1985, and you ran in large part due to the AIDS epidemic. You were trying to do something about it. Well, I wanted to make it an issue. That was a a period of time when the New York Times didn't acknowledge it because they had a policy of not dealing with what was received as a gay issue. And uh, Ed Koch, who was the mayor, was... Well, we all know that story, that he was didn't want to identify with a disease that was identified with a group of people who were gay. And it was the same thing as, the, as my awareness at Fortune, is that when any group of people are perceived as disposable or expendable, it is intolerable in a democracy. No group can be perceived as expendable. You didn't win that city council race. No, I got I did very well. I got 45%. I won the village and the any person that ever run for office can give you all the numbers. I won the village in Chelsea, but there was also a strip on the Upper East Side and Ed Koch campaigned like crazy for the incumbent. I'm going to mention a few names from the book and I want you to tell me a little bit about okay. those people. Harry LaCroix. Mm. Harry was a kid, a Haitian kid, 14 who came to Fortune. And uh, he was facing jail time that if, had he been an adult, he would not have been. He was a glue, He was an abandoned kid who was on the streets. And um, I went to juvenile court for him. And they said he could hang out with Fortune, but somebody would have to sign the papers to be his legal guardian. And so I said, well, I, I'll sign him. And uh, when I got back to the office, 
everybody said, what are you going to do? And I said, well, we'll get Harry into a, you know, we'll find a residence for kids that is reasonable. In the meantime, he'll stay with me. And they said, what are you, out of your mind? Uh, you have a 14-year-old uh, drug, druggy teenage Haitian kid. How is he going to, what are you going to do? And I said, well, we'll do it one day at a time. I gave them all the AA lines. The guys from Fortune were very protective of me. So Harry came, and I gave him all the rules as a you know as a fourteen year old. This is the house rules. You're going to help me with this, and you're going to do that. Uh, you make your bed. I had a living a couch that opened up, and I said, "That's your bed," and uh, you'll come with me to work until we find you school things. And uh, here's the key uh, to the place to the apartment. And Harry stayed with me for several months until we got him into a program. He always kept the key but he always called before he came and visited. What happened to Harry? Well, he was an epileptic, and he, at the age of 19, he died of a epileptic seizure. But he stayed out of trouble. Never got in trouble again. Went to school and then worked, and always uh, visited me and made me realize how many of these kids could be reached with with just a little bit of concern and care. That He wanted it so badly. And he was he was a wild one when we met him, but he and he introduced me to a lot of his gang kids that had been on the street and the story was pretty much the same. Barbara Allen is an important person in your life. When Fortune first started and four of the guys went on television, she sent a letter to Fortune saying, I'm doing my time on the outside and she revealed that she had been a school teacher in Long Island and a uh, mother of two little girls, and her husband went to prison for killing his father. And she found herself in the criminal justice system as the wife of a man on trial and then going to prison. And she was, because she came from a middle-class background, she had no experience with this, and she was outraged. When we started speaking in Long Island, she would join us all the time talking from the woman's perspective. And she started a group called Prison Families and it exists to this day. Her husband has long been out of jail and died. And Barbara is uh, 40 years later still doing this. David Rothenberg, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. David Rothenberg is the founder of the Fortune Society. He talks about the road that led him to launch an organization to help ex-convicts in his new book, Fortune in My Eyes, a memoir of Broadway glamour, social justice, and political passion. It's out now from Applause Books. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Bodarki. My thanks to senior producer Morlene Chin and producer Julie Clark. Have a great weekend. <laughs>